To Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we return this morning, pick up at the same passage we considered a few weeks ago. We have spent the entire time then on just the first part of the passage, which we received as instruction for proper preparation, including heart attitude for worship. Of course, the bulk of what the preacher has to say here has to do with what we do in worship and after worship. So back to this unique passage, we turn, a unique at least uh, to what we've been hearing thus far from the preacher, from a journaling approach, as we might call it, making observations for us to overhear. Now the preacher turns directly to us with hortatory tone, uh, direct commandments, and uh, rightly so because he's taking us now to the pinnacle of our lives, to the sanctuary, to the worship of God. So many of the places he's taken us so far have been places of vanity, haven't they? But this is the exception, the service of God in the sanctuary. Now, if we are to guard our steps on the way to the house of God, the Lord, dear flock, then what must our business be like with him, the high and holy one who is greatly to be feared in the assembly? Let's pray. Father, we ask for grace to receive everything your word has to say. It's most solemn commandments that they may find their place in our hearts and therefore govern our lives, our thoughts, our words, our doings. Would you do this great work now, we pray in us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll read the first seven verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than, you, than that you should vow and not pay. Let, your, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. As I was driving along during the day on Friday afternoon, I passed by a churchy-looking building with a sign out front. And on that sign, in the place where the service times are customarily listed, I read this. Worship experience, 930 A.M. 
worship experience. In two words, that sign described what so many so-called Christians are after these days. Not in the second word, but in the first. We're after an experience. Another experience. Something once again focused on us. All about us. Whatever that something, that experience might be. And in this case, worship. However, inadvertently, that sign betrays the very sin that the preacher here is laying his finger upon. It is the sin of coming into the house of the Lord with a self-centered, self-consumed attitude. God is only accidental to the entire affair. The supervenient, hardly even a vital part, except inasmuch as his supposed presence serves the supposed worshiper. You all know about churches now that begin worship with the distribution of popcorn, slide into a concert, continue with a pep talk, therapeutic, and then conclude with entertainment, all in the name of keeping things authentic. That's the buzzword now, isn't it? Religious recreation for recreational worshipers seeking a worship experience. The preacher tells us here that such worship is not only a matter of indifference to God, it is an offense to God. It is offensive to him. What we have just read must be one of the most bracing passages in the Bible concerning the worship we give to God. Next to the prophets calling such worshipers fools and calling them instead to fear God. Maybe you noticed as we reread the passage that it begins as it ends, establishing with two commandments the solemnity of this whole matter. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord, verse 1, and fear God, verse 7. One of my commentaries points out that this inclusion of admonitions counsels caution and reverence and restraint and sincerity before the Lord, as well as recognition that God, as you just sang, God is God. If there is a worship experience to be had in the house of the Lord, it is best described, I think, in the encounter that took place between Isaiah and the Lord in the temple that that prophet describes in his sixth chapter. Remember when he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, to the sound of the seraphim calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Remember how the foundations of the threshold shook and the whole place filled with smoke. Isaiah knew instinctively what to do before the face of God. It was a face plant. Of humility. Woe is me, he says. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, an, of a people of unclean lips. 
I'm guessing that's not exactly what uh, the people who are enticed by the sign to a weekly worship experience are really after. God will not be trifled with. God will not be trifled with, and he will certainly not make himself and his world to spin around the surrogate center of self. So what should our worship of God look like? What should our worship consist? Well, the preacher tells us that at, at its most basic, worship must consist of careful listening and careful speaking, all wrapped up in the fear of God. Careful listening, careful speaking, and that order of priority, and all of it governed with and filled with the fear of God. First, dear flock, our worship must consist of careful listening. Notice this is his very first point, verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. In worship, you, the worshiper, you have plenty to say. Of course you do, and we will get to that. But first, when you come to worship, come with the intention of listening. Here we can apply some of the wisdom we picked up from the preacher back in chapter 3, can't we? Uh, at the beginning of that chapter, remember, there is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Worship is not primarily a time for you to speak. It is first a time for you to listen. To listen for the voice of the Lord in the, in the presence of the Lord as he channels his voice through that of his ordained minister who authoritatively calls you into the presence of the Lord at the beginning of the worship service, who summons you in the Lord's name to confess your sins to the Lord, who conveys to you the words of forgiveness, who calls you into renewed fellowship with him and commissions you again to obedience with the reading and especially the preaching of the Word, who invites you and extends the grace of God to you at the Lord's table and finally blesses you with the Lord's own benediction before He sends you out to depart from this place of worship. When you come to worship, come to listen. You all know people who are quick to speak, don't you? Oh, they love to talk. And they talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. They love to. You stand there uh, listening, you know, waiting, perhaps hoping you could get a word in edgewise. Your mouth hangs open the whole conversation. You know, not because you're yawning, because, but because you're, you're just waiting and hoping. Maybe you can find some opportunity to toss even a single word into the conversation. The Bible tells us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Here with regard to worship, the preacher tells us in verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? You know, why should we, as James 
says, why should we be quick to hear and slow to speak? Particularly in the worship of God. Well, Koheleth tells us, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You remember, when you come into the house of the Lord, just who God is and who you are. He is God. He is almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient one that is the all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing one. And who are you? Who are you? I think maybe the psalmist puts it best. (laughs) We're worms. We're worms by comparison. Worms, yes, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ has been willing to die and be crucified, to be sure, for whom the Almighty has given His Son, even His only begotten Son. You sang it just recently. Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? He did. He has. And so remember, remember who you are. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Remember the first words out of Isaiah's mouth in the presence of the Lord. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Only a fool, only a a true biblically defined fool comes tripping into the house of God, skipping into into worship, multiplying words, says the preacher, verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Now there are times to be quiet and to listen. And if ever there is a time for you and for me to be listening, it is in the worship of God in the house of God. Of the Lord. Hear, O Israel. Remember Deuteronomy, come to listen first. God's words must and will take priority over our words, especially here, especially in worship. So, first in importance, our worship must consist of careful listening. But then second, dear ones, our worship must consist of careful speaking. Now notice that you're not prohibited from speaking in worship. In fact, quite the opposite. You're commanded to speak in worship. We're told to pray. We're commanded to confess. We're told to praise. We are told to build one another up, even teaching and admonishing one another, as you have done just this morning with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not words themselves that present the problem. It is the nature of those words and the quality of your words. That's the issue. Fools, as the preacher points out, have many words. Twice he compares the way they spill, words spill out of fools, to dreams. In verse 3, the verbosity of the fool is, is like the many dreams that visit the night in the night after a busy day. You know how it is, one after another after another. And those dreams visit you and, 
And just so those words trip lightly from the fool's tongue. And then in verse 7, the pious phrase is merely mouthed. They're as futile as dreams in the night. You wake up and poof, they're gone. Foolish words are many and meaningless and are unfit for the worship of God. Jesus, you remember, he pointed this out. He said the Gentiles multiply words. And maybe you've been guilty of this. I tell you, I know I have. I have at times said things in worship. Alas, even as I've been leading worship, with hardly a thought to what I was saying. Mumbling through verbiage I had no intention even of understanding, let alone living. So we all have sinned this way, haven't we? Hypocritical worship, dear flock, is sin. It's sin, and it's sin of the worst kind. So what's the alternative? Well, it's not to stop using words. No, the solution, Solomon says, is to let your words be few. Those few words, as the good vicar Charles Bridges pointed out nearly 100 years ago, the few words are words well weighed, well chosen, and ordered. But, Bridges quoting Bishop Taylor now, God hears us not the sooner for many words, but much the sooner from earnest desire, to which let apt and sufficient words minister, be they few or many. In other words, Bridges is pointing out, and I believe he's right, the fewness, that is the number of the words, isn't really the concern here but whether they be words of the heart. So long as the heart and the tongue flow together, he goes on, never suppose that your Lord will be weary of your many words. The few words imply the heart set in order before utterance. A thoughtful mind in a spiritual habit. I think you get Bridges' point. The preacher is not necessarily schooling us here on the quantity of the words that we use, but rather the quality of them. It's not as though Scripture is telling us to break out the clicker, you know, and start counting how many words we use. Let your words be few means let your words be true. It's not quantity, but rather quality that the Lord has his eye set upon. In worship, he wants your heart. He's not counting how many times your lips move or how much oxygen you are consuming. He doesn't listen to your prayers through the microphone, as it were. He listens to your prayers through the stethoscope. He's listening to your heart. Let your words be few means let your words be true. And then it means that what you say, you must do. In our worship, we make many, many vows to the Lord, don't we? And that's right and that's good. Every psalm 
Every hymn we've sung and will sing this morning specifically mentions, explicitly mentions, this matter of vows made or fulfilled or both in the house of worship. And we made a bunch of them, haven't we? Each and every one of us. Bunches and bunches. We cannot sing the Bible like we do week after week without multiplying promises and vows to the Lord. But what we promise, we must deliver. What you say, you must do. And there are spoken promises, vows that we've made in this house of worship as well, aren't there? And those, the preacher points out, must be kept. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, this grave word set me back to some of the vows I took in this house. Twenty-nine years ago, this summer, I stood right about here on this very platform on the occasion of my ordination. And before God, I promised to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise on that account. To engage, to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all the duties as a Christian and as a minister of the gospel. To endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock to discharge the duties of a pastor. Many times over the years, I've turned also on this very platform to elders and deacons elect to ask them to vow before God faithfully to perform all their duties to adorn the profession of the gospel, to set a worthy example, to promise subjection to their brethren, to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. Well, I intend to keep my vows, and I call upon my brothers to keep theirs. Reminding them, even as I have first had to remind myself, that it is before God and to Him that we have made these vows. And the pains of vows made but broken could not be greater. Verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. Works built on the foundation of broken vows are subject to the anger and destruction of God. I can hardly think of a more solemn word from the Lord than this. It sends a shudder down my spine. It causes me to place myself under the microscope and, more importantly, with fear and trembling, to ask God to place me under His, to search me, to know my heart, to try me, to know my thoughts, 
Just last week, we all, all of us took vows before the Lord again, didn't we? Once again, as we've done so often here in God's house, we vowed a solemn vow at our brother's baptism, didn't we? To surround him, to surround our newest member with Christian love, to pray for him, to set an example for him of genuine Christian faith and virtue. Let me ask you, how have you been doing? How have you been doing at keeping that vow? God was there, you know, even as He is here now. Every word, every promise, every vow you've made in this house, years and years and years worth of them, He has heard. And now He waits watchingly for you to keep them and to fulfill them and to obey. You feel that shudder down your spine now too? For who of us can say that we've kept any of the vows that we've made to the Lord perfectly? Or who of us can say that we've not uttered words, perhaps even just this morning, in the very worship of God with our lips only, devoid of our hearts? Well, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Praise be to God for the forgiveness of our sins through the cross and His resurrection from the dead. And glory be to Him for perfecting our imperfect worship through the Son and the Spirit. You know, we left Isaiah, didn't we, on his face, confessing, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Those lips were unclean for, among other reasons, the utterance of words and worship without meaning. The taking of vows that remained unkept. The very sins that we're struggling with today. Do you remember what happened next? An angel of the Lord, one of the seraphim, flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And and remember what he does with it? He touches Isaiah's mouth. And do you remember what he said? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. The coal, that coal has been pressed to your lips, hasn't it? And to mine in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is fully paid, as you confess in this house from time to time, He is fully paid for all my sins. Even the vows I have broken, He has covered by keeping His vow. Remember, the Lord Himself blows us away to think of it in Hebrews. He has raised His hand on oath. He has vowed. God has vowed to you, and He will keep His Word. He has given Himself as a ransom for you as He has done for me. And He will do it for all. He has done it for all who are trusting in Him. And He will today for you who will turn to Him today with repentance 
from your sin and faith in his son. He forgives. Isn't that marvelous? Even our faltering and faulty worship, even this morning, he forgives. And though our worship is never perfect in this life, isn't that heartbreaking to you? It is to me. Our hearts are never all that they should be, or certainly all that we would have them to be in the house of the Lord. Yet because of Christ's righteousness, because of his work as our great high priest, the worship that rises from this house reaches heaven's throne perfectly fit for the king through the intercession of the Holy Spirit through the mediation of our Savior, Jesus. And by His grace, we may turn away from our sin. We may renew our vows and strive to worship Him in spirit and truth again. Only let us do this, and if we will do this, the rest will fall into place. Let us fear Him. Verse 7. That's the fruit of forgiveness, as a matter of fact. Just strange to say, isn't it? Fruit of forgiveness is fear. It sounds so strange, but the psalmist said it, didn't he? He said it flat out in Psalm 130. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In other words, we are forgiven so that we may fear him. So that we may hold him in reverence and awe, for that is what it means to fear him, isn't it? Do this in your worship. Do this in your life. Let him have your best. Let him have your love. Let him have your confidence. Let him have your heart. Your whole heart. You're all. Amen.